Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. In Psalm 33, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. The familiar verse will be verse 12. I posted it on social media this morning, and that's the one that the the scholars want to rip to shreds, and I'll probably preach at them in just a second too. But in Psalm chapter 33, this this is called an orphan psalm for you theologians. The reason it's called an orphan psalm is because no one, it doesn't have a title. Many of the psalms have a title. And we don't know exactly who wrote it. The author is not mentioned. Most people think it's David, but he doesn't identify himself here. It's also a psalm of praise. And once again, for those who think, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me, uh, I want to go ahead and throw you to 2 Timothy chapter 3 that tells me that this whole book has something to do with me. Because all scripture is given by inspiration. It's good for doctrine. That's for teaching, to teach us for reproof, for correction, for instruction in all righteousness. And in Psalm chapter 33, this psalmist writes a psalm of praise telling us the secret, if you will, or the characteristics, if you will, of a nation who is to be blessed by God. Yes, he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, contrasting them with the heathen nations. But in generalities, the text says a nation that is to be blessed by God should follow these standards. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, you believers, you born-again people, for praise is comely. Some of your translations may say beautiful. A better one is suitable. For praise is suitable for the upright. Praise the Lord with a harp. We hadn't done that one yet. I'm waiting on Phyllis to have a harp one day. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. I want, if you take notes in your Bibles, I want you to underline that or make a note about the new song. I think this is important for our minister of music and everyone else to understand in every church that the, the commandment is to play skillfully <laughs> with a loud noise. In other words, turn it up. Appreciate that. If I had a nickel for every time I told Barry or somebody, we didn't pay all this money for this stuff not to be able to hear. (laughs) Turn it up. It's biblical. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He, God, loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. That's a, that sentence is a sermon that I don't have time to really preach today, but people look around. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. We serve a good God, a good heavenly Father who is loving, who is gracious, who is compassionate, And the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap, laying up the depth in storehouses. 
Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the heathen to naught. He makes the devices or plans of the people of none effect. The counsel or the plans of the Lord stand forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to make application in our hearts. God, I understand this passage is speaking to believers. It's drawn a contrast between those who trust in you and those who don't. God, most of us in this room think it's way above our pay grade to make a difference in our country. But God, encourage us today to make a difference where we're at, in our homes, in our church, in our community, on our jobs. And God, remind us and encourage us of the reality that if we do our part, if those who are called by your name do our part, we can make a collaborative difference in our nation. God, we would be remiss if we didn't take this time right now to pray for our country again. God, no doubt we talk about it far more than we pray about it. May we as a church and we as individuals be men and women of serious prayer for our great nation. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to preach for 49 minutes on the thought of a blessed nation. Scripture says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. As I study and I prepare, not just for a special day like today, I understand and I'm reminded that we live in a changing world. We live in a changing, transformational country. I'm not here to bore you with useless facts, but if you've paid attention and you have any rationale within you, as a believer or even a non-believer, you could tell, if, you've been, if you're more than about 12 years of age, you could tell that over the last decade or so, our culture has been rapidly moving in a different direction. Not just politically. Today is not the day where I'm going to come in and just talk about politics. Reading the Word of God, where there is teaching and fundamentals and doctrine in Psalm 33 for a country to be blessed by God. 
a nation to be blessed by God. If anything happened through COVID, what was already rapidly transforming went into high gear. Now, I don't need to explain the, the specifics of it, not that I could educationally do so in a way that would matter. But for that couple years, that was supposed to be two weeks, something happened that sent the transformation into an even faster speed. We wake up today in 2022, July 3rd, and if you fell asleep and took a nap for a while, we're in a different place. If you just do this and know where I'm going, I won't need to stop and dig. But this is not the same country of 10 and 20 years ago. And when I start preparing, and I know facts, and I was taught to read, and I can read books that have been published for a hundred years that somehow we're trying to change today, I feel like as I start to preach that I, I feel like I have to stop and teach history because this church, fortunately, has a vast array of age groups. We got some of us, even now, I feel like I was educated in the dark ages, <laughs> comparative to today's elementary, middle, and high school. It's a different world. And I'm not here to argue or to bash public education, or private for that matter, it depends on what type it is. But when I hear young people, man, I'm going to sound like just a mean old grandpa for a second. But when I hear young people, and you, you can just define what you think young is, talk about our country or disrespect our country, it really righteously ticks me off. But there's a reason why it's happened. They've been conditioned to disrespect our country. Now, nobody please get offended. I'm not talking about our kids. Our kids are perfect at this church. They, they, they've got good parents. They're perfect. I'm not talking about any of our kids. But through the public school system and through the media and through TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and whatever else they use that the parents don't know about, there has been a culture of a transitional culture of lack of patriotism. We had a president, I just, this is why this happened, none of this is in my notes. We had a president before this one who was a little bit nutty, but seemed to do what he said he was going to do. But he got bashed more than anything, not for being crude, but for being patriotic. American exceptionalism suddenly became something unheard of and obscene. What is American exceptionalism? 
We're the best country on the planet. That's what he would believe, which you would hope and pray that your president of that country would feel that way. But he got slammed because he loved America and said, we're the best, and we want to be the best, and we want to beat everybody else and everything else, which I thought that's what leaders did. If I had a captain on my football team that didn't think we had the best team, I'd have a problem with that. But it caught traction because we had radicalized, oh, that's a rough word, a certain segment of the population to think that it was bad to love your country. What do we do about it? We teach history, real history. We train up our children the way they should go. Parents, parents, it is our jobs to teach our children. If that means you can homeschool them, homeschool them. If you can't, they go to school and they tell them something crazy, but they know it's wrong because you've told them the truth. Or when they come home and say, ABC, you say, well, that can't be true. Here's why. And you tell them the biblical truth. You cannot, and, and maybe there's only three or none, and which if there's none, this is great. You can't deny the reality of the biblical foundation of this country. I found myself praying a little while ago, and I was like, I, I'm, having to, I'm having to talk to people while I pray because there's this young generation that is just ready to bash anything we say Christian about America. And I get ticked. Like, read a flipping book. John Adams, who was the second president, I think Tim's going to put these up here said this, well, they're not all born-again Christians. I know that. But many of them who didn't profess to be Christian could have preached better sermons than some preachers in pulpits today because they believe more Bible than they do. I can't, I can't flesh that out. Now y'all reading, they didn't have enough sense to take it off while I was talking. <laughs> he said, suppose a nation in some distant region... <laughs> now, they're, they're, all, they're always a second behind, aren't they? But you don't have to say anything. What's the next line? Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book. We don't need anything else. We've got a Bible. And every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry to justice, kindness, and charity. Stop. That sounds like a lot of buzzwords in today's culture. And the second president said these things could be fixed if they only took the Word of God as their only law book. And to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia. What a paradise would this region be. That don't sound like a believer to me. He may be lost as a goose, but he believed the Word of God. Thomas Jefferson, I love to use Thomas Jefferson. Well, he was a deist. And most people, that's about the extent of what they know is that word. What's that mean? Thomas Jefferson believed there was a God. He was a deist. But 
deism basically. A deist basically values, um, they, they devalue, but they value reason over revelation. In other words, if it's a miracle, I don't believe it. It has to be able to be reasoned. He denied the virgin birth. He denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In my best estimation, biblically, that makes someone lost. He was also the third president and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So a lost man who believed in God said, now it's time, bam. God who gave us life gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath? He believed in the wrath of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Now, once again, I'm not saying we're going to walk with Thomas Jefferson on streets of gold. But he believed in the God, a God, a God, the God of the Bible, based on his text about the God of the Bible. And he believed in the fear of God. And that God, he was fearful that God's patience would wear thin with America. He was lost, but he believed in the fear of God. John Hancock first signer of the Declaration of Independence, resistance to tyranny. Oh, this, this, we might roll time out from live streaming here. <laughs> you hear resistance to tyranny, people start, shh, shh. right? That's, most of us don't have to do that. It's already ready, right? Okay, here we go. <laughs> you just gotta, anyway. Resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. That ought to get our attention. What's next? Continue steadfast and with a proper sense of your dependence on God. Nobly defend those rights which heaven gave and no man ought to take away from us. Well, that's interesting that the Declaration of Independence says God gave us these gifts, these liberties. We understand, I feel like a social studies teacher, and I didn't do good in social studies. My teachers were terrible, I'm just going to tell you. I think sometimes many of our kids don't even know what Independence Day is about. Fireworks, smoke bombs, barbecue. Something something happened on the 4th. When they declared their independence from tyranny, history lesson, we declared our independence from a country who never gave any independence from a country that we were dependent on, that was basically ruling us with an iron thumb fist, controlling us. So we revolted. Revolution. A revolution isn't burning down a building and painting Black Lives Matter on a, on a sidewalk. That's crime. But that's the anyway. So revolution, that, that probably wasn't, didn't go over well with somebody. Revolution is necessary when there's a need 
for revolution. So they broke ties and said, let's declare our independence from not only those who politically held us, but those who religiously held us within their grasp. So they declared their independence, which is for anybody who was struggling, that's why we call it Independence Day. And in the declaration, which is where they declare their independence, they say, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people, we used to have to memorize this. They can't find it in a book now. But anyway, when in the course of human events, I'm mean, now you shouldn't be talking about them like that. I'm talking about their teachers. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and, the, and of nature's God entitle them. Wow, how many things could be fixed if we understood the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God? I can think of three real quick issues that could be resolved if we understand the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. There was a day when our leaders thought you could not agree and have decent respect to others' opinions. Our opinion no, no longer matters, seemingly. So we hold these truths to be self-evident. Wow, what a self-evident. Needed to define that. That means you don't have to explain because it's self-evident. Obviously, something changed. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life. You take away life, you have no liberty. Take away life, you take away liberty, you have no potential pursuit of happiness. How interesting. He's like, have you forgot that you're preaching Psalm 33? <laughs> How interesting that the root base definition of blessed is the nation. Blessed is happy. Now, we can spiritualize it and try to theologize, theologize it and come up with something better. But at its core, blessed is happy. It's happy for a reason, though. The same word blessed comes from words that uh, end up with victory. We can be happy because we have victory. America has experienced a lot of prosperity. A lot of protection, and in my opinion, a lot of patience from God. If I had the answer, to answer why that is, I think I would have some, a few people to, to get in line with me to say it's because of our biblical foundation. But it is quickly eroding. And it's not by chance it's on purpose with a strategy. Y'all help me out. What we are experiencing in America is not something that happened overnight. It's something that the antichrists, plural, heathen of this world, of this country, have strategized for a while. 
Whoa, whoa, conspiracy. No, no, this is just facts. We've got a group of people that want to destroy the foundation of America, which is why many of our kids in school don't even know what I just read about our founding fathers. And that's only three, and I've got a book this thick of all of it. We want to deny it. I, I can't imagine for any reason why a Christian would want to go along with, well, let's argue that they're not necessarily Christian. But they were necessarily biblical. And they had a strong view of Scripture and a strong view of the God of Scripture. And this nation was founded independently to get away from the restrictions of religion, family, and they based it on the Word of God. That's why your second president could say, suppose a nation somewhere out there just used the Bible as their only law, what a great utopia that would be. These fundamentals have obviously changed over time. And exponentially, as I said earlier. When did it happen? I don't know. I don't know exactly when it happened, but I come to a quote that I, I actually, I researched this quote this week to make sure I had it right. Because I've, I've thrown this guy under the bus a few times with this one quote. But I think when this guy made this quote, said this quote, I think it was a, a dot in the timeline of American history. And he was some of your favorite president. He goes by the name Barack because he didn't like Hussein because that wouldn't fly. Barack Hussein Obama said this, we are no longer a nation, a Christian nation. Now, I, I had Tim put it up there. He didn't know what he asked. He thought it'd be funny. And I was like, no, I want to do it. What, he said this. This is the actual quote from his transcript. Whatever we once were, we are no longer just, that's parenthetically for a reason, a Christian nation. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. June 28, 2006. Can y'all believe that 2006 was 16 years ago? Whoa, I, th I thought my math was wrong. I think it started long before 16 years ago. And I, and, and I don't know... President Obama, and I would like to sit and talk to him. I'd honor, I'd honor the president. I'd honor the, I'd do it. I'd sit down with the current one and love to, if we could carry on a coherent conversation. I'd love to do that. Ser I'm serious. I'm serious. I don't think we could, but if we could, I'd love to because I respect the office. I respect the man. I really do. It sounds like I don't, but I do, and I think we should, and I'd salute him as president. I'm serious. I would. And I'd do the same thing for, I think Obama would be a great guy to hang out with. But what, the controversy about this quote, and you can Google it, don't do it now, please, I've done it, was that he forgot the word just. And that was the, his, his cronies tried to fix the quote because all he said, what he said, actually said at the conference or the speech was, whatever we once were, we no longer, we are no longer a Christian nation. He forgot just. And so his, his cover-uppers came back and said, well, he forgot this word. This was actually in the text. The prompter and the, the written document. 
I, re- I researched this to make sure I didn't put words in his mouth that he didn't say. I come to this conclusion, I don't think it matters if you say just or not. What he was doing was opening up and stating a fact as the president of the United States, which carries weight, used to, carries weight. And he said, we're no longer, even if he would have said just, we're no longer just a Christian nation. Well, I can look around and see that without having to say it. There was a reason the president decided it was time to say it. And he opened it up to all these other ones. This, by the way, this is the same president who said he was Christian, or said he was Muslim, and said, no, I meant to say Christian. I watched that. I didn't need to get the transcript. I watched that. He said, yeah, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Christian. Sometimes when people ask me, I confuse the two myself. So I can understand that. I'm, I'm, I meant to say Christian, but the M and the C kind of. The point is, I think this is strategic. And now we're making rules. We're legislating, quote, social issues that are biblical issues. And I said this a few Wednesday nights ago. This was a tool and strategy of Satan himself to keep the church out of politics. We turn things into social issues, and then we say, well, the church ought to stay out of social issues. But let me tell you this. Abortion is not a social issue. It's a biblical issue. Marriage is not just a social issue, it's a biblical issue. Gender is not just a social issue, it is a biblical issue. And so the devil fooled a lot of you and a lot of churchgoers and said, stay out of politics. And you were staying out of making decisions based on the word of God. Now, I can't help you if a man stands in a pulpit or stands behind a stage and lies to our face and says, I'm going to do this and goes and does something else. I can't help you with that. But we're to elect people who say, we're to do the research, right, Lisa, and just make sure they're living up to the standard they say they are. And I don't make any bones about it. Don't put a man in here. Ted Budge stood up here a few months ago, whenever that was, told him to his face in the room in my office, and I told him in front of you, you go up there and you lie, we're going to call you out. But I did research before. Lisa's done research. She called me. She texted me one day. Hey, tell me about this Ted Budd. I got to find him here. So I called a couple people. I was like, I need to hear about Ted Budd. I met him before. He likes guns. He's got a gun, gun shop. That's about all I knew. But I found out. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Met his wife on a mission trip. Born again Christian. Says he's going to vote that way. If he doesn't, we'll call him out. But we have a duty to elect people who stand on biblical truths. Don't let the devil, don't let some preacher, don't let some carnal friend say, hey, don't be talking about politics. No, if it's a biblical issue, it way surpasses politics. And that's how we got where we're at. Is that enough of that? This text tells us a couple characteristics of a nation who is to be blessed by God. Number one, a nation blessed by God should praise the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. In verse number one, the psalmist tells us that a nation that is to be blessed or expect the blessings of God is a nation that should be promoting praise 
to God, should be rejoicing in the Lord. To rejoice means to cry out for joy. The question instantly in Psalm 33 is, who is it that God expects to praise the Lord? And here's something I learned a long time ago. I don't expect a lost person to praise the Lord or to live like a saved person. He says, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Listen, there is still a righteous, believing remnant in America. And I'm going to throw this out there. There's more places to praise the Lord than just in church on Sunday. And the world needs to see us praising the Lord. The world needs to see us rejoicing, crying out in triumph. That word rejoice speaks of triumph. What does that got to do with the Lord? What does that got to do with Scripture? What does that got to do with Christianity? We win. We know it. Even though this place looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket quick, we know the outcome. So we can rejoice even in the trials, even in the craziness, even with anti-God presidents and legislators. We are to rejoice. And people ought to look and say, what's, what's wrong with those crazy nuts? Hey, this world's not my home. Hey, I really am just a pilgrim passing through. They're better. The best is yet to come. And so I don't walk around with my, my head held down or, or in the mully grubs. Praise, rejoice. Why? Because praise is comely for the upright. As I said earlier, if you've got a different version, it, it may say praise is beautiful. Praise is beautiful for the upright. The word that beautiful comes from in the Hebrew, I like it better. If I write my own version, I'll put this one in. Praise is suitable to the upright. Praise is expected to the upright, for the upright. The word suitable or comely there, if it was to, if we put it into a, an English phrase, I like this, I hope you appreciate it, it means to be at home. For a Christian to praise the Lord is to be at home. It ought to be natural. It ought to feel right. I, I'm not one that gets loosey. I don't have any um, church of God in me or anything like that. Never, never had that. I like to watch people get up and do some things sometimes. I've seen it. But I'm grateful that this church is a place where it's not uncomfortable if somebody praises the Lord. I used to hear a preacher say, you know, you can get up and celebrate or do whatever as long as it's in the spirit. Well, I'm, I'm not the judge of that, whether it's in the spirit, but I've seen some things that I think got out of the spirit real quick. But the, the text teaches us that a nation who is to be blessed by God ought to consist of believers who are naturally at home with, comfortable with, praising the Lord. There's a side of that that's like, hey, there's no shame in praising the Lord. Well, I don't even know if I ought to pray right now over my meal. People are looking. Really? Really? Is it that? Is it that tense? Oh, and I didn't say praying for your meal was praising the Lord. 
It ought to be at home. They ought to know us by our praise. So we see that the righteous praise, and then we see there's a reason for praise. I want to throw this in here real quick because I think it's essential to the text. He says, praise the Lord with a harp, with ten strings, psaltery, all that fun stuff. But he says, sing a new song. Sing to him a new song. What is this new song? A new song, if you study, tells us that it was a song or a psalm especially written for a special occasion. The psalms are full of new songs. Uh, I remember, uh, it's not in the book of Psalm, but when uh, Israel crossed the Jordan River, they, they sang a song. They, they made up, I always think it's kind of funny in my mind, they made up a, a song of praise. I make up songs all the time. I like, I like to sing crazy, funny songs. I'm not saying theirs was crazy and funny, but it was a new song. A specific song for a specific reason. And the psalmist tells us, tells believers, tells righteous to sing a new song to him. If you study a little and dig a little deeper, you'll find out that this new song really comes back to what the psalmist is talking about and who he's singling out, which is the righteous, the believers. And I don't know if you appreciate this much at all, but if you've been born again, if you've been saved, if you're a believer, you got a new song. And it's your song. Because your song is different than my song. But we have a new song. And that song that you have is to be sung in praise to the one who made it possible. And he tells Israel, he tells the righteous, he tells the believer, he tells the nation to be blessed to sing your song, to tell your song. Praise the Lord. Praise him in his sanctuary, the psalmist says. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of a trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and a harp. Praise him with the timbrel and a dance. Whoa, that's not bad. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Isn't it crazy? This is Psalm 150, by the way. I I love studying this because it, it changes our traditions. Whoa, whoa, it just derailed that one. When you can when you can say dance and organ in the same passage. Some people don't like organs. Some people don't like dancing. Put them together. Man, talk about splitting a church in a minute. Start, start living out Psalm 150 if you want to tear your church apart. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. That's too loud. There's nothing better than seeing people cover their ears, by the way. We used to sing. I sung with the cathedrals for a while. And um, when we would go, <laughs> we'd sing. And I loved it because they would let you know real quick if it was too loud. The best is if you actually see Kleenexes in each ear, like sticking out. It's like, really? That's rude. But crank it up. That's what the scripture says. Praise him on the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. It's time in America for the remnant of the righteous to praise him, to be right at home with praising him. But a nation to be blessed is going to praise him. A nation to be blessed ought to recognize the power of the Lord as well. This is especially peculiar to me because when we look at our founding fathers, 
And as I've already said, and I hope I've made it clear, I'm not saying that they were all born-again Christian. But I'm saying the majority of them had a high value on Scripture and on the God of Scripture. Now, I can't, I can't flesh out that other than to say they were lost. But I do know there's a lot of people that believe in God that are lost. So I think it's possible. I think there are people that are afraid of God that are lost. The problem is there's a lot of professing believers that aren't afraid of God. I said that on purpose because I know where I'm going and I know what the scripture says. A blessed nation recognizes the power of God. And he moves right into verse 4. We're only at 4 and we're going through 12. For the word of the Lord is right and all his works are done. A blessed nation praises God and verses 4 through 11 give us reasons to praise him for his word and his works. His word is powerful. His works are powerful. And in verse 4, he, verse 4, 5, and 6, he enters into this idea of the power of the word of God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to synthesize this for you Cliff Notes fans and say this. This word is powerful. This word is the God-breathed word. And Scripture is clear that his word is powerful. There's no better indication than what the psalmist starts to talk about. And I'm going to skip to it to get to the point. He says, his word is right. For the word of the Lord is right. Man, that's just a mouthful that doesn't really need much description. My Bible says there's a way that seems right to man. But it ends in death, destruction. There is only, this is going to be transformational. There is only one right way. And it's the word of God. And here's what, it's an equal opportunity word. If it's wrong to you, it's wrong to me. You understand when we get together and we talk about things and you have a different opinion and I have a different opinion, somebody's wrong. <laughs> Everybody can't be right. But we need, to, we need to understand and own the fact that if you're talking to me, you're wrong. No. <laughs> that we can be wrong. And I might be wrong. I have theological discussion sometimes and I own it up front and say I might be wrong and I'm all right with it as long as I've got what's important and necessity right like the gospel there are going to be a lot of disagreeing people in heaven but they're not going to disagree on the gospel and be in heaven they're not going to disagree on the fact that we're born into sin, born separated from God, born in need of salvation, born in need of reconciliation to God. They're not going to be in heaven if they don't understand that God loved the world enough to send his son to be that reconciliation, to pay that price for my sin, that whoever trusts and puts their faith in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the essential. That's the, the word of God is straight, right. And there's some other things that I've figured out I don't understand. But I think they're non-essential to get into heaven. Ooh, ooh. 
The gospel is essential to get to heaven. I'd probably mess some people up if I said more, so I'll stop. I hear a lot of people arguing and trying to, and wasting time and spinning wheels over things that really don't matter. Other than to say, I got it right and you're an idiot. I don't think that's very spiritual, by the way. I think that's an exemplification of spiritual immaturity. When you want to walk around like you got all the answers. Does that happen? Absolutely. Sit around talking about issues that don't matter and not talking about the issues that does matter. And people are dying and going to hell while we're arguing theology. The word of God is right. There is one standard. He goes on to say, the earth is full of his goodness. He talks about the power of the word, and then he says, he ties the power of the word with the power of his works. And there's no better example of the power of the word and works of God than what the psalmist refers to when he's talking about creation. In verse 6, he says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host, all the stars and planets of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depth in storehouses. Now, I'm going to be quite honest. I'm not sure what verse 7 is talking about, and most theologians and scholars aren't either. Some say he's talking about dividing the Red Sea. Some say stopping the Jordan. I don't believe contextually that's what it is because the context is about creation. So I think it has to do with splitting the firmament and the waters being split there because the context is creation. The point, however, is the power of the word and the works of God. Because by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's a powerful word. The psalmist and the pastor are trying to go somewhere with this. In Genesis chapter 1, if you were to thumb through Genesis chapter 1, in verse 3, you'll see, and God said, let there be light. I like the last few words, and there was light. I've never seen that happen before. The closest is the clapper, right? Well, I guess today you can say, Alexa, turn on the lights. And that's maybe today. The clapper was quicker. You didn't have to call her by name and, I didn't understand what you said. (laughs) Let there be light, and there was light. That's the power of the Word of God. And here's the deal. We can't wrap our little pea brains around this. Now, you can sit around and try to figure it out, and you won't. A fiat, not the car, but the Hebrew word. To speak into existence. This is the power of God. This is the power of God's word. This is the power of God's works. That he can speak things into existence. Well, creation, uh, evolution kind of makes more sense. Well, I don't disagree. Ooh, what's up? That you can take some things and see that they have somewhat evolved. 
You can see some evolution. Not, not the, don't, everybody be all right. Everybody calm down. Some things change over time. But Ken Ham, Dr. Ken Ham, always says this. You ask this question initially when people start to explain this hundreds of millions of years. And the question is, were you there? He always says that. It sounds really dumb. He's a PhD, so I guess it's smart. Were you there? And then the question is, of course, you weren't there, but who was there? Nobody was there 100 million years ago. So where'd you get it from? All the writings. No, there were no writings either. So where'd you get creation from? Were you there? No. Were the writings there? Got some good ones. Go way back to it. But nobody can explain where the first anything came from. Well, there was a storm and lightning struck. Stop. Where'd the clouds come from? Where'd the lightning come from? One of my favorite evolutionary stories is the lightning striking the pond and it zapping it and these little one-celled, single-celled popped up and turned into this. So here's the question. Where'd the cell come from? Where'd the pond come from? Where'd the lightning come from? Where'd the thunder come from? Where'd the clouds come from? No evolutionist can tell you the answer. They can only use ingredients in their recipe, but they can't tell you where the ingredients came from. There's only one reference that tells you, and believe it or not, that's up to you, God spoke it into existence. That's the power of the word of God. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, which I believe is what he's talking about. And I love these in verses 6 and 7, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 11. He says, let there be a firmament. Let the waters of the heaven be gathered together. Let them bring forth grass and herbs yielding seed. In the last three words, over the last four words, and it was so. God said, and it was so. And the psalmist talks about the power of the word of God, and it was so, to speak it into existence, and ex nihilo, to speak it into existence out of nothing. That's the God of our Bible. That's the God of our Christianity. That's the creator in John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and sustainer of our creation, our universe. The power of God, the power of his word, and any country, any nation who is to be a blessed nation will trust in the power of God. Not the power of gods, not the power of a God or a religion or a multiplicity of religions, but the power of God. They will recognize the power of of God, and because of that, they will fear God. I've heard a lot in my tenure as a Christian about the fear of the Lord. And I'm going to be very honest, and I don't like to say what I'm about to say, but I have to be true to the Scripture, to the text. I think I hardly ever, except back in the old days when you listened to them on cassettes, <laughs> preachers used to preach about the fear of the Lord. And people got scared. Just going to be honest. And over time, we've diluted the fear of the Lord. And I'm going I'm to stand in front of the line and say, I've probably done my fair share too. 
because I don't like to talk about the fact that the Lord should be feared. It just sounds bad. Now, I am true, and I, am, I have preached, you know, God's not some vengeful God that's sitting up there waiting on you to mess up and burn you up. I have preached, and I believe God doesn't get mad at you and blow your tire. I've heard that preached. You didn't give your tithe, your washing machine blew up. That's why. I think that's laughable. What good did God get out of it? And now you can't tithe even more because you've got to go buy a washing machine. But the Bible says a nation that recognizes his power should also fear him. Let all the earth fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And here's what we've done. Well, it doesn't mean that kind of fear. It's like a reverential awe of God. No, this text says you should fear him and be in awe of him. And I don't like to think that we should be fearful of God. But it's in the right perspective and within the right context. We're not fearing him because we broke his heart and now he's going to get back at us like some ticked off boyfriend. No, we should fear him because of his power and his ability. And then he gives us an example that he can confound and mess up the plans of the heathen. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is powerful, and he should be feared, and any, here's the context, any nation who expects or wants to be blessed should fear and be in awe of God. You'll help me out, and we'll conclude. If you can acknowledge with me that America is no longer a nation that fears God. Through our legislation, through the marches, through the burning down of buildings, through all the craziness we've seen, all but people shake their fist in the face of God. I, I, time's up. I'm going to say it. Let the chips fall where they may. I believe the church should have an appropriate response to some of the social issues that are going on. An appropriate response. I think the Word of God is straight. The Word of God is fixed. I think there is no room to fudge left or right. I think we speak the truth. We speak the truth in boldness. We speak the truth in love. But, but the love part doesn't change the truth part. And this, I'm going to sound like an old grandpa. I know it. But I want you to hear me, please. Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, there he went. Oh, stop. Let's take a breath. Sodom and Gomorrah was not, read the text and study it. It wasn't simply the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was their celebration and parading of their sin. Read the text. It's one thing to sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
It's another thing altogether to celebrate that sin. And for the love of everything holy, to throw a parade for it. To throw a parade is the prototype. It's the, the way to celebrate something. And to have months, and to have a day, is a, it is a, it's a proclamation. And, and how unfortunate, but yet contextually true, they call it pride. Now, church, I'm being serious. This is what the world looks at when they see America. When they see us dedicate an entire month, we give a day to people who died for our freedom, but we give a month to people to show their pride for sin. Now, now let's back up. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. But we go to the place where we sin willfully and parade in it and celebrate it. It's a whole different ballgame. And now America is being branded. We're being branded. When we have those pride flags waving at our embassies in countries that arrest people for doing what we celebrate, it's what we're being known for. And I know it sounds so backwards and knuckle-dragging to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. But the principle is the sin was celebrated. Church, we 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 got business to do when we see the country that we love and the country that we celebrate and the country that we take pride in celebrating sin. We cannot sit idly by and expect God to bless our nation with this garbage going on. So what do we do? I believe we honor God individually. I believe we do the recipe for the blessings of God. I believe we praise the Lord as a believer, and I believe we recognize the power of the Lord in our individual lives, in our family lives, in our church life, in our work life, in our community life. And when we do that, it will make a difference. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have nationwide revival and the Lord won't come back for another hundred years and we'll have millions get saved, but it may happen. I think there's some prophecy that lean toward the fact that there'll be a, maybe another awakening before he returns worldwide, not just America. May we individually be believers who praise the Lord unashamed, recognize his power, and fear him. And verse 12 says, it's all about the people. And that's us, the people. I know the people specifically are Israel and his inheritance, but the believers have an inheritance. And we as believers are to make a difference. It says, the word of God says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
Now, I feel like I let the air out and depressed you. But what it ought to do is challenge us to make a difference. Listen. Gender, marriage, homosexuality. I'm trying to make it as specific as possible. Are destroying the foundations of America. Because the foundation of America is family. And you can't have these three and have family. Now, if you want to argue that with me, I'm going to walk out that door when this is over. And I'd love to talk to you and debate you about how you can have a nuclear family the way God planned with these three things prevalent in America. You can't. They're all, they're all a strategy. Here's the deal. That seems overwhelming. Can I change? Can I, can I talk to somebody and change them? Can I, can I convince somebody that there's only two genders? Can I convince somebody that it's wrong for a man and a man to marry? And, and I'm, I'm asking questions that we all ask. And we're like, well, what can I do? I can remind you that the word of God is powerful. I also tell you that a true born-again believer, they ain't buying these three. They're not. But they're buying the fact that the power of God, the power of the gospel, the power of his word can change the hearts and minds of people that believe that junk. That's our job. We preach the truth in love. We love people. We're compassionate to people. We get along with people, but we teach them the truth just like we teach our kids the truth because we love them even when it hurts. We do it in love. We do it in boldness. We do it with compassion, and we trust God for the results. Could there be a revival in America? Absolutely. Is God still on the throne? Is he still saving? Is he still capable? Absolutely. Let's live like we believe it. Would you stand with me? Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.